I have invited many, many people to church, and I promised them that, they, you know, if you come to church, you can sit with me, and I got a seat with, you know, you can sit with me on the front row. I've had a few people come. I'm going to give them the best seat in the house, right? People pay the most money from the front row seats. Is that not true? But I can't get those front row seats sold in the church. <laughs> Somehow the back row Baptist is always taken up, aren't they? And so I'm glad you're here tonight. Glad you came back to join us. Had a good day today. It's been a blessing to get to know your church. I've been with your church people all day today and into the night. So uh, take your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 6. Uh, the first church in history was here. It's in Jerusalem. The book of Acts records the first 30 years of church history. That's what God gave to us. And you could title this message a couple of different ways. You could title it uh, Unity in the Church, or you can entitle it A Real Threat to the Church. The church is under threat. Do you understand that? On a regular basis. And I've seen many good churches uh, veer to the right and to the left and destroy themselves and their ministry. And it can happen to any of us as individuals. It can happen to us as a family. And it can happen to us as a nation. It can happen to us as a church. And so Acts chapter 6, this is in the first church, very early on in the first church. And let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a... A murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason or it is not fitting that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look among you for seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening, thank you that we can open up your word. Lord, we have read down through this passage as we see a problem, a struggle in the early church life. And Lord, this church is in a trial. It's in a test of their faith. And God, I would pray that we would handle things correctly, that we would go to you and to your word and that we would stand firmly in the right place, that we would endure through, and Lord, that we would learn as we are being educated through a trying process, and that you would be praised with how we go through it and the decisions that we make. They're making some vital decisions that will affect the future health and life of this church. Thank you for the day that we've had together. I pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit would just burn in our hearts. Lord, I think of those two men on the road to Emmaus. Jesus was talking with them, and they said it just burned in us when he was opening the scriptures. 
And God, I pray that you'd open our understanding, that we would make proper application to the situation that we're in in this church. We pray it in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've read the book of Acts, and I assume that most of you have, there is a theme that you will see early on and often. It is the theme of unity. You'll see it if you'll look back at chapter 1 and verse 14. Just take a look back. We'll peruse through. But you see a constant theme in the early church. The Bible says in chapter 1, verse 14, these all continues with one what? One accord. One accord. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 1, notice you read there, they were all with, Look at the end of verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. They were there all with what? One what? One accord. Take a look at chapter 2 and verse 46. Chapter 2, verse 46. Chapter 2, verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord. Keep reading. Notice that with gladness and what kind of heart? Singleness of heart. See, you notice how tight this group is. Look at chapter 4, chapter 4, and verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. The multitude of those that believed were of one what? One heart and of one what? Soul. Now this unity that we're reading about in this church is more than just a getting along type of unity. I think when we talk about unity, we're not quite sure what the Bible is meaning, but it but we, in our minds, we're just going to get along. We're going to have unity in the church. We're not going to be fighting against each other, and we're going to be kind and nice. That's the kind of unity that we're thinking about. That's not the kind of unity they had. They had something much greater than this. The early church unity was a unity of working together. It was a unity of purpose, a unity of why they existed and it was a type of unity they did, they did not think of themselves first. It was a loss of self type of unity. It was a unity of mission. Somebody had commanded them at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, five times after Jesus resurrected, before he ascended, they call it the Great Commission, and they had heard that. And they had a unity of mission. What is this church all about, and what in the world are we trying to accomplish here? If I lined you up against the wall and asked you, what are we trying to do here, and asked the next person, what are we trying to do here, are you going to say the same thing, or am I going to get 100 different answers? What do you think? If you don't know what you're after, you're probably not going to get it. See, we have to have a unity of why we exist why we've been saved, and why we've been called together in a local church. It's a unity of mission. It's an overarching mission. It's the great commission of Jesus Christ. It is the cause of Christ. And it's a unity, listen now, of teamwork, of accomplishing together, of working together. It's a unity of funds. It's a unity of possessions. And you saw all of that in the New Testament. Did they not sell their lands and sell their houses and sell their materials and provide what was needed for the church, yes or no? They did what it took to get the job done. 
They were working as a whole group to succeed and produce, and that brought about a dynamic that you don't see very often and very few people are a part of. Most church people work independently. Few people have ever experienced this type of unity. Think about where you work. They have this kind of unity at that place you work. Now, I know they put them little mission statements up on the wall. You got any of those things of what we're all about here and what we're trying to accomplish? Some people are trying that and other people could care less. How about a sports team? You guys like sports, yes or no? I think Oklahomans like sports for some reason. You ever been a, a, a part of a team that has a unity like this? Now, I don't like this team, but I discovered something about them. It's called the New England Patriots. You ever heard of them? How dominant, some of you have been watching football a long time. How dominant has the New England Patriots been for the last 20 years? Has it been unheard of? Yes or no? Just be honest. I know you might not like them either. You know, I, I was up in Rhode Island. I was preaching at a church up there. And you know what kind of fans they got up there? They got Red Sox fans. And they got New England Patriot fans. And so a church family I was staying with, they wanted to take me over to Gillette Stadium. I said, really, really? I have no desire to go over there. <laughs> but they said, oh, no, no, you need to go. We want to show you all the stuff. And I said, okay, whatever. If this way we're going to spend our day before church tonight, we'll, I'll just go along. <laughs> we'll eat lunch too, so that didn't hurt. <laughs> so we made our way over to Gillette Stadium and I ran into a guy that was cleaning the parking lot. So I talked to everybody I see. And so I asked him, I said, you know, uh, what's it like, you know, working here at the stadium? And he said to me, you're, we're about one thing. You know what he said? We're about winning the Super Bowl. This is the guy picking up the trash in the, in the parking lot of the stadium. We're about one thing and one thing only. I think there was another guy in the Bible said this one thing I do. Remember who said that? What was his name? It was Paul. See, we all have to work. We got families to raise and things to do. But we have one overarching theme as a Christian. And that is the great commission of Jesus Christ and accomplishing that and fulfilling that. And so all that we do with all the other things is part of life. But one thing we get up every morning in our mind is I want to fulfill, I want to complete, I want to do the great commission of Jesus Christ. And there's a football team that has drilled that even into the people who are cleaning the parking lots. And I don't see that unity very often in church. I have seen it in church, but there's very few churches. The churches I have seen it in you want to guess what kind of church they are? You want to guess what kind of church they are? They're a powerful church. And so you see this unity in this early, early church. We have a problem, and it's called selfishness. Me first, my preferences, and I know best. And if I have some time left over, I'll give it to God. See, we look at church in America like a pizza. 
I give the church a slice of my life. I can go in other places and the church is the center of their life. And everything they do revolves around the church. They're in church six days out of the week. Let's say to our church people, we're going to have services six days of the week. What would they say? You can go ahead and have all the services you want, but we ain't going to be here but these days. Are we having more church in America or less church in America? You just tell me. Are we getting better or are we getting worse? So our idea of fixing things is to do less. How's that working out for us? How many of you guys remember revival meetings? We doing more of those or less of those? If we do have them, how long are they? And how many people show up for them? Same old group that always shows up. Maybe we'll get one more in this time. I think if I made any mistake as a pastor is I didn't have long enough revival meetings. I've been a part of some week-long revival meetings. I've been a part of some that are longer than that. I think by Wednesday, people are just getting warmed up. By Thursday, if you cut it off on Wednesday, the Thursday, they kind of feel, oh, we should go to church again tonight. I believe the Word of God is powerful. It can stir things in our hearts, and we don't give the opportunity for it. We're just living from Sunday to Sunday, maybe from service to service, and we have our own life, and church is just a part of that. I want you to think about family unity. Some of you have been a part of a family. Maybe you still have a good group at your home. And uh, let's say that your family members, they think about themselves first. Many families are operate like this. They see dishes in the sink, but they just walk on by. So they see the trash can is full, but they just walk on by. They see that or orange dirt all over, orange dirt or red dirt, I don't know what you folks call it down here. But they see that on the car, but they just walk on by. That's somebody else's job mama's job or dad's job and my brother's job or my sister's job it's not my job so I'm not going to do it I'm just going to walk on by somebody else is working in the house they see him working but I'm just going to sit here I'm not going to get up they might even say it out loud that's not my job that's somebody else's job if somebody has to keep asking you to do this or to do that you're still not to the place where you're invested enough in your family to take care of business. And you're still immature. If you still happen to tell your 12-year-old, do the same thing you told him last week, and he ain't got it yet, something's wrong. When's he going to take some responsibility and maturity? When your kids start seeing stuff, they ought to pick it up, yes or no? Then they're starting to get it. When your son comes in and he's got cereal and he shakes the box and not much left in the box. And so he wants to beat his sisters and brothers and he pours himself the biggest bowl he can pour so he wants all the cereal for himself. Or do you have a son and daughter that come in and they shake the box, well we ain't got much left so I got three in the family here, I'll get three bowls out and we'll have three level bowls. You got a kid like that? How's your kid think? Is he thinking about himself? Or is he thinking about the family? You know, we have sometimes husbands that think like this. Not a wife said amen. They get up from the table, 
And they just walk away. Leave their plate, their fork, their spoon. Leave their dishes. Leave all the food things. Just leave it right there. Because that's my wife's job. Really? Sure go a lot quicker if everybody picked up their plate, yes or no? Wouldn't be a bad idea if we just said, Mom, why don't you just go on in the living room there and we'll take care of this because you did a good job cooking and you've been working all day and fixing this for us and we'll just clean up. How, what would you ladies think about that? <coughs> Let's say you have a family of six. You have a family of six and you're not too, doing too good financially and so you only got five pieces of chicken. Who's going to go without the piece of chicken? That's exactly right. Why is that? So you're going to make sure everybody else has. So you want to be in a family where all of them say, I'll give up my piece of chicken for the rest of the family. See, that's the kind of unity we're talking about. That's the kind of unity most churches don't have. Most homes don't have that. You have to teach that. You have to lead that. You have to demonstrate that. Or we'll stay selfish and say it's somebody else's job. So this is the unity we see in the early church. This is a selfishness that if we're not careful will hurt our church and hurt our families. And we think of ourselves first. That means other people are going to suffer. We have to change our thinking to God first, to Christ first, to the church first, and ourselves last. It's not what is best for me. It is what is best for God. What is best for my family? What is best for my church family? Most Americans have come to the place where they're thinking about themselves. They make decisions based on themselves. What's pleasing to me. And if God fits in, if the church fits in, if that thing on Thursday night or Saturday night fits in, I'll stick it in. And if something happens to come up, I'll push it out. I need to do what is best for the whole, not just myself. Now notice in, in, in chapter 6, notice in verse 1, everybody there? What jeopardized their unity? Now we talked about their unity, but what jeopardized their unity? What threatened their ministry? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. There is one word that is causing the threat. Starts with an M. What is it? Murmuring. What's another word for murmuring? Complaining. What's another word for complaining? Grumbling. Griping. If we leave murmuring alone, it'll eventually cause division. Instead of working together, murmuring has now started. Complaining has now started. And now they are working against each other. And a house divided cannot stand. Church people complaining destroys, number one, the unity of the church. And when you destroy the unity of the church, you now, number two, have destroyed the power of the church. And number three, therefore, the effectiveness of that local church. 
Notice in verse 1, what caused the murmuring? What caused it? Take a look. Look at verse 1. Well, something caused that. What? What caused the murmuring? What happened in verse 1? It says, when the number of the disciples were what? They were increased. They were in multi- They multiplied. Now, is that a good problem or a bad problem? When you get more people, is that a good problem or a bad problem? Yeah, when you got more people saved, you got more disciples, all of a sudden every pew in this place is filled, you got no seats left. Is that a problem? It is a problem. I was telling someone today we had maybe seats for 100, and we're running over 200, almost close to 300. Man, we had people sitting there. I mean, we put up chairs in the aisles and chairs around the place. I even had a door over there. We put chairs in there, and all they could, you could see people there sitting like this, paying attention to church. We had a problem. Two stools for the whole place and a dirt parking lot. I can't tell you how many times I had apologized to women who walked into church with mud between their little toes and their pantyhose. But, you know, they didn't care about that. They didn't care that we had two bathrooms and a dirt parking lot. There was a unity there. We were about something. We were accomplishing something. We were doing something. None of that stuff mattered. Oh, man, you can have people throw fits when the church is too hot, when the church is too cold. You ever had those kind of complaints? Oh, please, turn the fan off. I said, why don't you move over to where the fan ain't blowing? Why don't you put some clothes on if you're cold? Some people are just cold-blooded, yes or no? Some people just hot, yes or no? Boy, maybe I'll take them overseas and I'll put them in a real hot place. They ain't got no air conditioning in most places of this world. It don't take much for us to get the murmuring and complaining. Belly aching. It's real. happens real easily. And we start beating our little drum. And so we have a good thing here happening. The church has multiplied. Are they multiplying by the tens, by the hundreds, or by the thousands? By the thousands. I mean double-digit thousands sometimes. I mean, this is a good problem to have. Don't, don't you wish you had this problem? My wife was in charge of nursery. How many kids do we have in that nursery? How many babies did we have born one year? Four days. It was 16. Now, how would you like to be running a nursery? got 16 new babies we had a staff of 100 and what 19 ladies working in the nursery and the more people you got the more problems you got more headaches you got that's why some people like to live in small towns just saying and so it's multiplied the more people you have the more stress you have the more needs that you have and certainly in the early church They were facing what we would call incredible expansion, and they were also at the same time experiencing persecution. When you read these early chapters, there was persecution taking place. And so there was the pressures of ministry, there were the pressures of life, and everyone in this building, we all have those. When more people come, the workload increases, and notice what happened in verse 1, because, because the workload increases, because the number of people were multiplied, because people began to murmur, they murmured about something, and what they murmured about is because some people got neglected. 
How do we say that in American terms? Some people fell through the cracks. Oh, we just, you know, I'm trying to care for 50 people and I missed three of them. Okay, okay, I got 47. <laughs> Isn't that how we think? Some people fell through the cracks. Some people were overlooked. Some people were left out. Some people were not cared for properly. Now that's all right and good as long as it's not you. Everybody got invited over to the party but you. You didn't get a note. Does that ever happen at church? Yes or no? Now, we won't blame it on the postmaster. Where is he at? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes somebody just forgot to put your name on the list. They just forgot to mail you an envelope and an invitation, and you find out everybody's going, and you didn't get invited. What's the deal? They don't like me. Can you believe we didn't get invited? Did you guys have a good time over there? Oh, why weren't you there? Well, I didn't get invited to come over there. <laughs> see how this stuff goes <sighs> happens easily when you don't have enough workers and you have too much work it equals murmuring complaining Jesus told us a long time ago the laborers are what <laughs> the laborers are few and the outcome of this was murmuring and you know what the word murmur means it means to speak No, you know, I don't know why they're doing that. That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, what are they thinking, Brother Mike? I mean, that, that committee, you know, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, you know, that committee that's making all the decisions. <laughs> that's what murmuring means. It means you're speaking in a low voice so only certain people hear. You know what you really do when you're murmuring? You're taking seeds and you're dropping them on the heart of another individual. And those seeds just might take root, and now you got how many people murmuring? Two. I learned something about a long time ago. If somebody comes to me complaining, I'm going to say, whoa, 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 now. Have you talked to the individual? Have you talked to that committee? Have you talked to the preacher about that? And you know what the answer always is? 100% of the time. No. And I always said this to them. Well, I'm going to let the preacher know you need to talk to him. And you know what they would do? once you do that they won't come to your ear again if you are hearing a lot of murmuring it's because you're tolerating a lot of murmuring you've, you've given your ear for it and they know they can come and talk to you and so they're going to come and talk to you and there you go with your little murmuring that's what the word means it means to utter discontent it means to express complaints means to grumble now let us never think let us never think that we can complain and nobody hears it you know who can hear our complaining we can complain to ourselves anybody do that in this room i wonder how many people complain today because church went a little long today i didn't even realize what time it was so I, that's normal for me it was long service day, wasn't it? How long did we go today? A couple hours? I don't even remember. I wonder if anybody complained in their spirit. I got a pot roast at home on the stove. <laughs> that thing's going to be dry. <laughs> I don't know. 
But we can complain even our own hearts, and it doesn't go out to anybody else. But I'm telling you, God hears that. Do all things without complaining and murmuring. How many of us have ever complained about God? How many of us have ever complained about the preacher? How many of us have ever complained about our spouse? How many of us have ever complained about the church? How many of us ever complained about God's provision for us or God's direction in our life? Is it easy to complain, yes or no? Like a fish to the water. I remember I moved from the great state and wonderful state and magnificent state. Oh, I didn't tell you this, but I need to. The birthplace of American civilization. I moved from the great state of Virginia. It all started there. And moved halfway across the country to the flat, brown, dusty, windy, tornadic. I didn't know anybody state of Kansas. When I moved back then, they didn't even show NASCAR races out here. They didn't show any ACC games out here. There's a reason. I know, I know. I used to come here when Nebraska and Oklahoma used to blow everybody out. They don't do that no more. They used to win by 70 to 10 scores. You know what I'm talking about? You guys remember those days? And so we get here, and I'm complaining. I used to preach a lot in Virginia. I'm not preaching at all in Kansas. I don't know anybody in Kansas. Nobody's asking me to preach out here. I mean, do you have any other colors in the state of Kansas besides brown? They had just cut the harvest. <laughs> it's July and it's hot. And they had a dust storm when I got here and the, and the whole sky was dark. I'm thinking dust bowl. And you want me to buy a house in Kansas where they have dust bowl where everybody left? It might happen again. This is a bad investment. <laughs> and this is going on and on and on. <laughs> and my wife and I, she's listening to this course she's back in her lovely state of Kansas she's really happy she's close to her parents again and my wife said this as we drove up the road in our little brown Honda with no air conditioning she said Egypt I said what did you say she said Egypt I said Egypt I'm thinking Oh, I remember those people that got out of Egypt. They were what? They were complaining about how good it was back in Egypt. Remember that? They used to have leeks and onions. They forgot about all that toil and that slavery in Egypt. I'm reading through there and said, these people are crazy. God's taking them to the promised land and all they're doing is complaining. And boy, did that strike me. Egypt. <laughs> She's like putting a knife into a preacher. <laughs> She's giving me my own medicine. And I finally apologized. And I said, Lori, I'm sorry. I need to be content in whatever state I'm in. That's what the Bible says, right? <laughs> and I stopped complaining. I asked God to forgive me. And about a week later, I got news from my home office in Virginia that they had fired everybody, including my boss and my boss's boss. When I left Virginia in 1989, I made $40,000 a year. 
and I worked some days two hours for that $40,000. And I moved to Kansas and took a job that paid me $12,000. See, I had a lot to complain about. So I said, But I knew that God wanted me to go to Kansas because I left a job that had not much to do anything with ministry and I was teaching the Bible, this very Bible, for six or seven hours every day helping me to become a pastor when somebody get up some age where they might even look at me to be their pastor. But I was complaining. And you know, if you're complaining, that complaining can go over to your spouse and your spouse can become a complainer too. And if you're complaining and your kids hear you complaining, you know, they can become a complainer too. And you do that around your church people and your church people can become a complainer too. You understand what I'm saying? It affects people. It makes people look at things a little differently. Sometimes it makes them look at things that they never even saw that. And we need to be very, very complaining, uh, very, very careful with our complaining. Notice the widows here in verse 1 were neglected. And so the first church here had, had failed when it came to these certain widows. Our main ministry in church is not so much the, the building. Our main ministry is people. It's not technology. Sorry about that, Brother Michael. We can live without that if we have to. It's not entertainment. It's not entertainment. We've got a lot of that going on today. It's not buildings. Our main ministry is people. Church is about people. And the case here is about the food ministry. Anybody on the food ministry here at this church? You guys have a food ministry? Okay, we got one hand right there. You guys take food in when somebody goes to the hospital and they come home or somebody has a new baby and they come home and do you guys have like a food ministry like that? Okay. Well, there was a food ministry in this church, and somebody got neglected, and, and this murmuring started. And if you let the murmuring continue, if, you the, if the complaining continues on or if it's left unattended, number one, it's going to destroy the unity of the church. It's going to cause, listen now, hard feelings. You ever had any with people in the church? It is going to hurt feelings. It'll eventually, if you let the complaining go on long enough, it'll eventually lead to a division. It'll lead to people leaving and possibly could even lead to a church split. Number two, complaining will distort the character of the church. People will speak bad of the church. They will say about your church that those people over there, they don't care, they didn't do anything, and they're a bunch of hypocrites. Have you ever heard somebody complain about their church, yes or no? Well, when you complain to somebody about your church, they heard what you said, and most likely they're going to pass it on to somebody else, and, and they're going to look at this church and go by there when they see this church, and they see that, oh, that, that, those people over there, they do this and they do that because they've heard that complaint about your church. How do you turn a testimony about a church around in a community? Some churches have to overcome their testimony. Some people will not grace the doors of that church because of what they heard someone else say about that church. That's what complaining and murmuring will do. You murmured to your sister about your church, and your sister told somebody else who goes around that town, and now they think bad about that church, and they'll never grace the doors of that church, and never, possibly never be saved. Because they got invited to that church, and they said, I'm not going to that church. Because they heard something negative about that church. It really didn't matter. It was just somebody complaining. You understand the ramifications of murmuring. It can distort the character of the church. Number three, 
it will dissipate, dissipate the energy of the church. Because now when there's complaining and murmuring that's going on, where is the focus? Our focus will be inward. Because now we're looking internally and we're doing all of our energy trying to take care of this problem that's going on in the inside. And we're, when we focus inwardly, we're not getting the work that we're supposed to do done. And so it dissipates the energy of the church. And all of our efforts are spent trying to solve problems between people and we don't get the work of the church or the work of the Lord done. In the midst of problems, whether they're good problems or bad problems, listen now, there is a greater threat. A much larger threat to the ministry and I brought you to verse 4 to help you to see it. Here's the real threat. The real threat in fighting fires and fighting the complaining and the grumbling or these small problems is that we lose our focus. And we lose, listen now, the priorities of ministry. That, my dear friends, is the real threat to your church that you lose the priority of the ministry. There are many churches, even churches in this town, that are probably doing good things, but they're not doing the most important things. And if you're doing number 17 on the list, number 18 on the list, and number 19 on the list, but you're not doing number 1, 2, 3, and 4, you might have a tremendous website, but you're not winning anybody to Christ. Baptism pools have been dry and there's bugs in the baptismal pool. What does that say? Nobody's getting baptized. And we got emphasis over here and emphasis over there. And you got a lot of churches that are helping the poor. Providing food. Your priorities have got to be right. And that was the biggest threat in all of this. And that's what the leadership of your church needs to make sure they don't lose the priority of the ministry. Because if they lose the priority of the ministry, they will lose the heart and the purpose of the local church. And you'll lose focus on why you even exist. So a major threat in churches is to neglect and then abort the primary duties and ministries. And my dear friends, this is Satan's strategy. And that's why the Bible says this. When they heard this murmuring, the Bible says in verse 2 that they called the group together. Look at it. They didn't call the group together and say it wasn't true. They heard the murmuring and the complaining. You know when somebody's murmuring and complaining, it might not be all true. But usually there's a grain of truth in it. Usually there's a grain of truth. A lot of times they embellish it, yes or no. They make it worse than it really is. But it might be bad. Not as bad as they make it, but it might be bad. Now notice that these apostles, notice that these apostles didn't say it wasn't a problem. They recognized the problem. The Bible says in verse 2 that they called a multitude together and said, it is not fitting, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Does that mean that they could not serve tables? Does that mean it would be a sin for them to serve tables? 
Does that mean they couldn't clean the toilet if they need to? No, it doesn't mean that. This is not fitting. We have our responsibilities, and they're very, very important. And if we leave those responsibilities to do these responsibilities, and we don't get back to those responsibilities, then the most important things that we're supposed to be doing is not going to get done. And they list it out for us. So they gave a solution to the problem. Notice in verse 3, they said, look among you. Let's get, we got to get some people. And what kind of people they look for? What kind of people are listed in verse 3? You're talking about people with what kind? good character, right? I mean, these are, look, these are just taking care of some widows. Look at the character they asked for. And we're going to appoint those people over this business. But notice in verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Satan causes us, tries to cause us to abandon the primary work of the church, which is praying. Has American church abandoned that? Yes or no? Praying. Have we abandoned it? Yes or no? Least attended services, which one? If you have it, it's praying. When's the last time we prayed and fasted? Maybe we hadn't had any crises in our life. We don't need to pray and fast. Is that what we need, not to pray and fast? I'm just asking. We believe the Bible, yes or no? Well, if we believe the Bible, then we ought to do the Bible. Teaching. How important is that to the church? There is a difference between teaching and preaching. You can read through the book of Acts. They put them both in the same sentence. When's the last time we had some teaching on how a man ought to love his wife and how we ought to raise our children, how we ought to spend our money? We need some teaching. We need some teaching on purity to our kids. Yes or no? We need to teach our kids self-control. We need some teaching on that. Are kids struggling with self-control? Yes or no? They can't control that phone they got. They got their head buried in it. How long? They got video games. They're stuck in there. and They're secretly doing all kinds of stuff. The reason they're doing it secretly is they know better. When, but it's dominating, consuming their life. They need to have some self-control. Who's going to teach that? Everybody talks about what disaster our homes are today. Who's the last time they did any teaching on it? So that our moms and dads know how to be a mom and a dad. I'm going to tell you, and Lori can tell you this, when I got married to her, I had no idea how to even hardly be a man, much less a husband. And I discovered how to be those through the Scriptures. I had no idea how to be a father. I learned from the Bible how to be a father to kids. It's in the Scriptures. But oftentimes we're sending people into marriage and they have no idea how to be a husband or a wife. They're having kids. They have no idea how to be a mom or a dad. And we need to teach. How about preaching? How important is preaching? Oh, we're going to change out some preaching and we're going to become a PowerPoint church. I'm going to PowerPoint preach you. How about that? You like some of that? That's what we've gone to today. The guy just stands up and he clicks through, shows you some pictures. Here's some scripture verses. Let's pray and let's go home. He's not expecting anything to happen to your life, and he's not going to give an invitation because there's nobody coming forward because nobody's been touched by God or the Holy Spirit or anything else. But we got services today. Aren't you glad we had services today? Doors are open. If that's all you want to do is keep your doors open, then you're in the wrong church. God's church is about outreach. It's about going, 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 going. How come we can't understand that word? Go. Got to be going. Got to be getting after it. 
So what we do is we end up replacing our highest work with good things. You ever heard of the YMCA? Yes or no? You have one in this town? What's the C stand for? You know that. Now, how big a Christian organization are they? You know, we are uh, part of the YMCA. We get to travel across the country. We can find a Y in almost every place. And how many of those Ys, my dear wife, how many of those Ys have any spiritual emphasis at all in them? How many can you name? One. And it's in Goldsboro, North Carolina. They got Bible study in there. They got scripture verses up on the wall. They got a prayer list when you come through the door. I think they believe in the sea. But I go to YMCA's everywhere else, and all it is is gym membership. How did they get there? How did Harvard get to the place where, it, oh, by the way, it's graduating out pastors. And those pastors are taking some of the biggest churches and biggest financial churches in America, but they don't believe the Bible. How did they get to a point like that when they were started to be seminaries? And how do some of the churches that we know that are around us get off mark so far and get into things that they have no business in and promoting things that are contrary to this book? How did they get there? Because they began to do good things, not the most important things. So I replaced 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 with 15 through 20, and before long I'm replacing 15 through 20 with 35 through 40, and before long you can't tell the difference between me and anything else. We can line up believers on the wall and unbelievers on the wall and can't tell a the difference. They're watching the same movies, love the same television programs, listen to the same garbage and music, and I can't see any difference in them. Got the same haircuts and the same styles. Talking about the same things and have the same loves and passions. Listen, if you get around somebody who has a passion for God, you're going to know it. If they have a passion for God, are you going to know it? You're going to feel it. You're going to see it. You might not like it. No, I don't want to be around that person. That guy's a holy roller. He's always trying to get me to pray with him. Because he responds spiritually to things. In verse 4, I want you to notice something. Notice their determination. See, this is great leadership. Great leadership is they recognized their problem, they gave a solution to their problem, but they continued the main work of the church. That's great leadership. That's the kind of leadership we got. Look, we got a pastoral problem. We don't got one. We recognize the problem. What are we going to do about that problem? Okay, we're going to put a search committee together. We're going to fast and pray as a church. We're going to make sure we're looking for the right kind of person. We're going to be patient. We're going to wait. And we're certainly not going to complain. And in the meantime... We're going to get the work done that the church is supposed to get done. I tell you how many, I, let me tell you what most churches do when they have no pastor. They go on a timeout. We're all going to take a timeout until we get a pastor here. Then we'll go back to work. That's a dangerous thing to do. Because then you start losing people. and you're going, if you, Listen, if you're not going forward, you're going the other direction. Notice their determination in verse 4. They said that they will give their strength they're going to give their energy. They're going to devote themselves because the important matters must never replace 
the most important matters. The secondary must remain secondary, and the primary must remain primary. And this has been a major problem of the church down through the ages. Staying focused on the most important things. This threat that you and I see here in Acts chapter 6 is real. And it remains to this day. And if we don't understand this threat, we don't understand this attack upon our church, we will turn away from the primary ministry of this church, we'll turn away from the primary ministry of prayer and the Word of God, and we will turn to other things that we deem good and good enough. And we'll feel good about our church and we'll continue to live our life for ourselves and we'll get a little thing done here and a little thing done there and before long the primary things that are so far out of sight we don't even know who we are anymore. You start to drift out and before you know it you're so far away from shore you don't even know which way shore is. Are you following me? They've gone so far out. So we turn to many good things and worthy things and they begin to dominate our church finances. They dominate our church people. And they dominate our church's energies. What's the emphasis of this church? What's the heartbeat of this church? Where's our money going? Where's our energy going? Where's our people working? What's it all about? Money's going somewhere, yes or no? You know, most people, when they spend money on missions, they're spending very little of it on missions. And most of the money they're spending on themselves. Basically, what I'm saying is we're giving crumbs to the mission field. And we're eating at the buffet table. Do we have enough? Folks, it's not a lack of time. It is a lack of priority. It is a lack of, of focused importance. It's a lack of principle. It's a lack of discipline. It's a lack of conviction. It's a lack of planning. It is a lack of leadership. What are we all about? Why are we here and what are we trying to accomplish? Are we a team? Are we unified in purpose? Are we unified in heart? Have we linked arms together? And you may have the spiritual gift and you drive the tractor and I have the spiritual gift and I've just got a little hoe, but I'm bringing my hoe and you're bringing your tractor and we are working together to accomplish. How many people in the church should be giving? How many? Oh, we're just going to let those people who have money give. Should the children give? Should the elderly give? When everybody gives, you have plenty of money. Everybody works. And we're knowing where we're headed to. It'll be dynamic. Because now you have a unity, a purpose, and you have one cord, you have one mind, and you have one heart, and you see your ministry and you see what you do in the church as a part of the effort to accomplish the whole. See, if all you think that you're doing in the nursery is watching a bunch of children, if that's what you think you're doing in the nursery, you got the wrong idea. You are in that nursery so some parents can have a time out from their kids. 
to give mama mostly a little bit of a break. And you can sit in this sanctuary and not have to listen to a bunch of kids hollering and screaming. They are distracting, yes or no. And so the other people who come to this congregation that got invited there this week can hear the gospel without distraction. And when you look at your work in the nursery as a ministry to this church, you'll do a different way of working in the nursery. It's not just a job. It's a ministry. So you have to look at your part, the part you're playing in the picture of the whole, your piece of the puzzle in helping this church fulfill what Christ commanded us to do. Everybody always talks about, you know, I want God to say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now you know who's going to get that said to them? People who do what Jesus said to them to do. And what did he say for us to do? Five times he told us. Five times. Matthew 28. Mark 16. Luke 24. John 20. Acts chapter 1. Five times. Now we're going to accomplish that or we're going to do something else that's easier. When he comes back, hope he finds us faithful about what he told us to do. You say, well, what is that great commission? We need to evangelize. How many people in the church should be sharing the gospel? Have you ever caught a fish by accident? Yes or no? Nobody in Oklahoma has caught a fish by accident. I caught one in the back just the other day. One of them old things that, what do you call them things? Suckers? What do you call them? Yeah, there you go. I went fishing the other day. I think it was New Year's Day or New Year's Eve. I don't remember what it was. Was it New Year's Eve? It was a Tuesday. I can't remember. This guy's been asking me to go fishing for a long time. I finally said, oh, I need to go fishing with this guy. And, boy, he put us on him, too, man. We were on him. But I caught that fish in the back. If you don't have your hook in the water, you're not catching anything. Should a fifth-grade boy in this church be sharing the gospel with the kids at school, yes or no? Should the old folks, when they gather at some little restaurant to shoot the breeze for four hours in the morning, don't you, don't you think you ought to share the gospel there? Oh, you do that, and you might not have any friends at the, at the little eating place no more, and it might move away from you, won't sit with you no longer. <laughs> don't you think we ought to share the gospel? And then we'll see some people getting, you have a baptistry up there anywhere? It's, it's hidden. It's up there somewhere. Is it not a joy to see people baptized? To hear about how they came to Christ, who witnessed to them. And then we got to disciple them. I try to make it a point like this. When we baptize someone, I want to know who shared the gospel with you. How did you come to Christ? And some of them said, you know, from your church, I received four gospel tracts. I know, what is this church all about? Everybody comes from that church and hand me a gospel tract. I got four of them. I thought it was a message from God or something. And we get to hear when they're in the baptism pool, so-and-so knocked on my door, so-and-so I worked with, so-and-so shared the gospel, Some, somebody brought me to church. We had one family in the church. They brought a family to church every Sunday, and they told that family if they come to church, they'd take them out to any restaurant in Hutchinson. And they had somebody sitting with them every week. I like that. They said, we're going to eat anyhow. We just might as well take somebody with us, and if you'll come to church, I'll take you out. People will go for a free meal. 
And some of those people are still in church today because he cared about his co-workers. And they'd stand up in that baptismal pool, and I'd ask them, tell me how you came to Christ. Who witnessed? Who shared to you? How would you get the gospel? And some of the people in the congregation didn't even remember that they gave him a gospel tract, and sometimes they'd say their name out, and he says, I don't know the person's name, but they're sitting right over there. That person right over there. They came by where I were. They left it at the, at the, as a tip with, with some money. And then I'd ask them this question. Who's discipling you? Who, who's working with you? Who's meeting with you on a regular basis and working in the Bible? And then they would say that person's name. I always had women with women and men with men. Because we don't want to have a baby and leave it in the woods. Right? We're supposed to make disciples. And then I would baptize them. And then I, as a pastor, I'm looking to engage them in the ministry somehow. And so I got lots of jobs in the church. You guys have lots of jobs here? I got jobs that even unbelievers can do. Can an unbeliever mow your grass at this church? You don't mind if an unbeliever mows your grass, do you? How about if he shovels your snow? I had unbelievers that had not professed Christ yet, I had them doing work at the church. But I engaged people in ministry. I even engaged the kids in ministry. Do you know how kids can work? I had a junior usher program. Had 15, I don't know, 15 kids. Most of them were boys, about 11 boys and four girls. And they had to work six months without missing a beat, and then they'd get a badge. Now, if they were gone, they had to call me on Saturday night and say, Pastor, I'm not going to be in church tomorrow. I'm with my family. We're on vacation. I'm going to a ball game or something like that. But they had to call me, and they had to do it for six months. And if they made six months, they got themselves a badge. You know how kids are. They like working for badges. And, boy, when you put that badge on them in front of their parents, they were so proud. I can't tell you how many times one of those little boys would sit at that door and shook a person's hand when they came through it, what that meant to people who came to church. I had a little old boy out there. He was a little round, a little chunky in the face, and he put out his little fat hand, and he shaped people's hands. And that touched a lot of people. And I had kids who... Boys took care of the boys' bathroom, and the girls took care of the girls' bathroom. Always made sure there was toilet paper. What do you think about that, ladies? Is it good to have toilet paper in there, ladies? That was their job to check every Sunday morning. When church was finished, they would take every pew, and the kids would work. Because we had an early service, and a Sunday school, and a late service. And after the early service, and after Sunday school, and after late service, you could see the kids. Row after row, they're walking them, picking up every hymnal and turning it and making sure it's in its right spot, picking up every piece of trash off the floor. And they could whip that sanctuary out in a couple of minutes. Or we could just leave it for someone else to vacuum it. You know how long it takes to vacuum a place like this when you've got to go in between these pews? You know how much work it takes to do that? And those kids would get out and pick up notebook. And by the way, if you make kids do that kind of work, they're less likely to throw stuff on the floor. And they'll tell their little friends, hey, would you quit doing that? I see you're always making a mess over there, and i got to pick up that candy after you. Keep those Cheerios in your mouth. And the <laughs> I had kids that were watching the other kids for me because now they happen to do that. 
but they would clean that church. And I'd watch them work. Do you think that was impacting to lost people when they came and they saw the kids working through the benches like that? We can all engage in ministry. We all have a part to play. When you get everybody engaged, and you can't leave them in a space. Sometimes they're immature, and sometimes I'd go to people and say, i got to fire you. I said, yes, it's time for you to move up. I got somebody else that's going to come and run the tape ministry and make the CDs of the sermons on Sunday, and I need you to come over here and do this. Can you come over and do it? I think you can do it. And I would move them as they matured in their faith, putting them in places of their spiritual gifts. You ever put a piece of a puzzle in the wrong spot? This means yes in Oklahoma. This means no. You guys never done a puzzle before? And you pushed it in the wrong place. And when you, you know, you, when you push it in, you, you, you know, this, this is not the right spot. But when you put a piece of puzzle in the wrong place, it's like putting an individual in the wrong place. It's painful to the individual that went in that place, and it's painful to the individuals around that person. Because they are in the wrong spot. And so you got to know your sheep. And know what their spiritual gifts are. And put them all in the right place so that our church can be healthy, vibrant, and strong and I should go into the nursery department I should go in the youth department I should go in the children's department I should ask any of my Sunday teachers what are we all about at this church what are we trying to accomplish what's the goal when we carry the football and we cross the line where's the line and what are we after and they should be able to say this is what we're working toward and if we don't know that it just may be that we're not after the primary things and we've allowed secondary things to take over and Satan is standing on the sideline cheering because I got another church off track that's a real threat to our ministry a real threat let's join arm in arm and let's work together for the cause and the kingdom of Christ and you know what? When you end up in heaven, you'll be glad that you did. And we can accomplish something as a whole. That we die to ourselves. It's one of the things of being a disciple. Deny yourself and take up your cross. You die, deny yourself, you sacrifice yourself for the cause of Christ. It's that simple. And we can do a work together. I have found that when you have a church that has a heart like that, let me tell you what happens. God's hand of blessing comes down on that church. And that church will see miracles. And God will do through that church impossible things. Because here's a church that's after the heart of God. And it'll make an impact in the community. I've shared my heart with you today. I want you to be successful. This town is counting on you. We don't have many good churches left in America. We got a lot of churches, but they're not pointing in the right direction. And we need good churches. And when the gospel's not shared, and people don't hear, they'll end up in a devil's hell. Do you understand that? And it's because we didn't do the work that we're supposed to do. Let's stand to our feet. I'm going to let us pray tonight individually.
And I'll close this in just a few moments. I pray that God has spoken to your heart, my heart. Every eye would be closed and every head would be bowed. We need to have biblical priorities at church. Got to have leadership. First things first. We got to stay on course. We've got to be determined. We got to focus on the most important. Lest we be distracted and deceived and lose our church to the good when God wants us to be excellent. Let's go to him in sincere prayer. Let's pray for this church, for each other. Let's cry out to God. And I'll close us in just a few moments. Let us pray.